This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, Corey Nathan, and it is an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Please consider leaving us a review. It's, it really does make a difference. The, I've been realizing that as our show ranks on the different apps, um, it really does make a difference in terms of getting uh, seen by folks who aren't familiar with the conversations we're having here and including more people in the conversation. So you can go do that, leave us a review. That would be a huge, huge favor. It really does make a difference. Or just tell somebody about it. Get in a conversation about all the crazy stuff we're having yeah, that we're talking about here. Um, I, we'd love to include more folks uh, in these types of conversations. That's kind of what it's all about. And uh, yeah, we're having one of those conversations today with Dr. Ryan McNally Lins. Ryan McAnally Linz is a systematic theologian and associate director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. He works at the intersection of theology, ethics, and cultural criticism. Ryan co-authored Public Faith in Action with Miroslav Volf. Dr. McAnally Linz also co-authored the book we'll be discussing today, Life Worth Living, A Guide to What Matters Most. He co-edited The Joy of Humility and Envisioning the Good Life. And his scholarly articles have appeared in a broad range of publications, my favorite being on the eschatological implications of the Big Lebowski. Actually, that's fake news. But anytime you get to work in eschatological and Big Lebowski in the same sentence is a good day. So, <laughs> Love it. Love it. How you doing? Thanks for coming in. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. This is, uh, this is exactly the sort of stuff I like to talk about. So let's, let's get going. Awesome. All right. So I was curious a little bit more about your own formation, your own kind of... Uh, life uh, trajectory. When did you first start wrestling with the types of questions that you ultimately came to deal with now vocationally? I It started really early, if we're being honest. I, I can think back to being a kid lying in bed at night and um, having this strange tendency to latch on to really big questions. Um, I'd try to think of the beginning of my life and man, there was a time when I didn't exist. That's crazy. I can't remember it because I wasn't there. What does that mean? And then I try to think about the end of my life and I couldn't think of the end of it, but I couldn't also, th I couldn't think of anything that didn't have an end either. And it was just these kind of, these sort of big kind of, uh, philosophical things creeping into consciousness that then eventually start, I started to realize that it's not just, speculative um this is there are real questions here that shape the way we ought to live right um what's the meaning of death what um what's the meaning of having been born of coming from a particular place and so it's it was just kind of a slow burn from i'm a kid who's confused in my bed at night to like i think i'm going to study theology and devote my life to this so i'm curious if uh, number one did you grow up going to church yeah, yeah. So we were we were regular churchgoers from my infancy on, and the, there wasn't a real big break in that at any point in my life. Uh, we went to synagogue uh, every every week. I went to Hebrew school twice a week uh, at night, and then Hebrew high school. And I noticed early on that I wrestled with some of these questions as well. And then now uh, in my adult life, going to church, 
and my kids going to church, um, to the degree that they had existential questions or big theological questions, you know, relative to their age, there are some kids who they'll get to the point of asking the question and then they get the answer. Um, and especially for a kid, it's like, oh no, this is the answer because, you know, Pastor Dave yeah. or Tom, or in my case, John MacArthur said so, and that's where the conversation stops. Oh, okay, got it. Now that this is what we believe. Did you accept answers like that? Or was it like, no, 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 right, come on, let's see, you know? I, at least as far as I remember, I, I had a twin tension going on. On the one hand, uh, I really wanted to, like, please my elders yeah and so i was not inclined to make waves on the other hand there was a like bubbling rebellious streak that wouldn't let an answer be an answer and thought we were all trying to get off cheap on some of these things and i i had uh just a a fantastic pastor at the church i went to in pasadena california a guy named by the name of charles barker who happened to be my best friend's dad oh wow and was just really good at cultivating the persistence in the questions at not trying to offer pat answers, but trying to develop sort of a way of life that allows for discernment and is, um, and is trying to be faithful, but not, um, not trying to shut down the questions when they're real and hard and, and not easily resolved. So were there ever questions where you butted up against, Oh no, 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 we can't, we, we don't ask those questions or, Oh, that's a great question. Where it started question. getting dangerous. That's a great question. I honestly can't remember a time. I, yeah, no, I, I just can't remember a time where I asked a question that was considered out of bounds. Now, like, that's great. I was a teenager. I did things that were considered out of bounds, <laughs> but like, that's a, di that's a different thing, I think, um, that, than being, having the question shut down. Yeah. So, uh, I didn't mean this to be a segue, but um, it is nonetheless. When we had gone to this uh, church called Grace Baptist Church up here in Santa Clarita for a long time, and then the church got a new pastor, and I'm still friends with the, the, the main pastor, uh, Dave Haig. And when he first came to the church, we started getting to know each other. He wanted to involve me in ministry. And um, I had to tell him, I said, Dave, I drink, I curse, and I play poker. If those are non-starters for you, then, uh, you know, it's better that we know now. And he said, he said something along the lines of, oh, you're going to be one of those kinds of assholes. <laughs> I'm like, I think we're going to be getting along pretty well, Dave. Um, so poker. So tell me, are you a Texas Hold'em guy or are you one of the more exotic games or what, what's your what's your game? I have uh, a soft spot that, that many of my friends uh, are don't particularly love about me, but I, I'm really into Omaha High Low. Oh. I think that's I think that's one of the best poker games. My brain hurts. You said Omaha, I already have a headache. Like <laughs> really? So high low too. Oh man. But don't like the the re one of the reasons is that unless you're playing literally like fought nickel and dime, uh this I can't, I just can't keep up with the stakes. No matter how good of a bankroll I have, I cannot keep up with the stakes on a Omaha high low. Well, I, I mostly play nickel and dime. Uh, that helps. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I think the thing that I like about it is um, it's, it's actually at some level less degrees of freedom than something like, like Texas Hold'em. There's, yeah. um, there's more stats in it and less uh, of having to... Well, it's less risky stats, right? Oh, that's interesting. You can... You can 
if you're especially if you're playing at a table that not a lot of people know yeah uh you can just you can bide your time until you get a hand that you can really drive and then just kind of push your advantage all the way and somebody's going to fall into it uh so it makes it easier to actually cut down the risk i think it's a risk aversion thing honestly it's funny because i like it that i've always played games where if you play perfect basic strategy you can i kind of define a perfect basic strategy depending on the game and the rules and then if you play perfect basic strategy there's actually a, an opportunity for you to win money and then especially when you're not playing against the house it used to be blackjack where there was single deck um single deck dealer stands on all 17s resplit aces there are certain rules where you could actually if you were playing perfect basic strategy and doing like a minimal level of card counting um, you could turn the edge just slightly into your favor. But then when I discovered poker, it was not playing against the house. The The bet was, if it is a bet, it's a it's a measured risk that if I, if I define a perfect basic strategy, you're betting that the other guys at the table are going to make mistakes. And that's where you that's where you win money. So so what what first drew you to the game? Uh, that same pastor. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, we started playing Texas Hold'em around the time that everybody did, like right when ESPN started broadcasting mm. World Series of Poker, you know. Yeah. Uh, but we had always been game players, and um, and I, I I think I think games are really helpful for thinking about life through. Um, if you read Life Worth Living, the book, we we talk about games a couple of times because yeah. they they helpfully crystallize things. They kind of. They create a world that's more rule structured than the one we actually live in yeah. that helps us see things a little bit more clearly that hopefully then we can kind of like apply analogically out in the out in the world of our actual messy lives right. in ways that can get us some traction on how we how we ought to be living. So you do talk about games throughout the book. The one place that I thought of poker the most uh, clearly it was when you were talking about Job and and you asked the question, have you ever found yourself in Job's position? And uh, I don't know about you, but I, I played quite, I don't play nearly as much anymore, but for a while there, I was playing a lot, like a lot. And uh, <laughs> if, if you've ever gone on like a two or three month run of bad cards, you definitely question your very existence. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a cruel universe, right? That would continue to give you that bad of cards over and over again <laughs> all you're doing is sitting at the table what did you do to deserve it <laughs> yeah exactly like the universe the entire universe is conspiring against me what did i ever do um so okay before we move on i gotta know like any biggest hands ever or worst hands ever or anything come to mind oh that's a great question so the heyday of my poker playing was when i uh i spent some time in guatemala shortly after graduating from college and the main hotel in the town where we stayed at a place uh, called Santiago Atitlan had a really good regular poker game. And I suppose the highlight of my poker game, my poker playing career was coming in like second place in their big, massive Omaha tournament oh, that wow. they did for all the, all the expats and some of the local folks on the, on the lake. That's uh, awesome. The most money I ever won is on a hand that I lost. <laughs> How'd it's, that go? <laughs> no, so there are certain houses where they do these um, jackpot, not jackpots. I forget what they call like uh, worst hand or bad. Oh, bad beat. That's what it was called. So I was ah. playing at the bike, and I, there was 
there was um, a player at the table, uh, a young lady who was just having one of those nights, a terrible, terrible night. And um, I, I get pocket aces. Uh, I hit a set on the flop, and there's a king out there. And I'm thinking, hmm, okay. We're, we're doing pretty good. I hit my set, king out there. Turn, and she's playing with me the whole time. So I'm thinking, she must have the other ace. She must have like an ace king. Because there's nothing else on the table. There was It was like a, a rainbow board. There was nothing else on the table where I, I felt like my set was good. Um, she must have... And then and then uh, King comes on the on the turn, and I'm and I'm, I'm now I'm starting to feel bad because I'm thinking because I put her on an Ace King, so she has a you know what she thinks is uh, two pair top two pair, uh, and then the King comes and now I'm thinking she has Kings full of Aces, uh, but I'm sitting on Aces full of Kings and I'm because she had such a bad night I'm feeling bad she for had her. four right she had yeah she had quad Kings so that's oh. how it all came down. <laughs> My ace is full of kings, lost to quad kings. And, uh, you know, it's because it was funny because I had nights like that where I was losing all night. And I'm looking at her. I'm like, oh, this poor girl. She's going to lose her whole stack again. You know, she had finally built it back up. And, you know, the, the, the pot alone, it was a one-two table. So it wasn't like huge money. But it was like for that size table, it had to have been four or five hundred bucks in the middle. And uh, I just, I, I started feeling bad. And then everybody turns their cards over. I'm like, holy cow. Like for me, it's like, I don't play with money that I can't afford to lose. So I was losing maybe 200 bucks or whatever it was. Um, and I'm like, oh, and then, and then like, uh, not, what do you call it? The floor men, floor men start coming over and then looking at the hand. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm fine. I lost a big hand. Okay. Don't embarrass me now. But then I realized there's this bad beat thing. And I won $9,100 on the, cause I lost, I won that jackpot or whatever it was. 9,100 bucks. So Miss Lisa, my lovely bride, she, she got a lot of furniture. <laughs> you know, she, she, she like, you, you know, we're spending that money well, right? I'm like, okay, that's good. I'm glad I could, uh, I'm glad you can enjoy my poker playing. <laughs> so anyway, okay. So we did it. This is not a poker. <laughs> Much to everyone's dismay. This is not a per- poker podcast. Okay. So let's talk about life worth living. Uh, a guide to what matters most. But before we move on, I wanted to tell you about something else that's important. Money. <laughs> uh, specifically your money. In all seriousness, I wanted to tell you about my advisor and my friend, George Meza. George runs Meza Wealth Management. And with George, it's not just about money. It's about helping us manage our present and plan for our future. And unlike a lot of other firms out there, George and I actually have a relationship. He knows me. He knows my family. And I know his wonderful family. I also know his firm and the incredible team he's put together from his chief investment officer to some of the other great people in his office, like Jessica, their head of operations that are always there to help me and with all aspects of our portfolio. You see, the thing is, I got a lot going on. I guess we all got a lot going on and I don't have the time to watch our investments all day, every day. And even if I did, I don't have the experience and expertise that George's team collectively has. So we get the entire Mesa Wealth Management team all their expertise and all their integrity. And again, it's based on George knowing me personally, knowing my goals, and even the kind of risk that's appropriate for me to take, which by the way, could change from one season to the next. And they're on top of all of that. So if you want George Meza and Meza Wealth Management to be on your team, just visit their website, mezawealth.com. That's M-E-Z-A wealth.com, www.mezawealth.com. And that will also be in our show notes, so you can check that. 
And now, back to our show. You know, one of my first questions actually was something along the line. You know how kids are like, well, who says? So that was one of my first questions. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, uh, Miroslav Volf has a high profile, a lot of folks, and he's a, you know, very prolific author. A lot of folks know, know his work. Um, but that's a big, that's a big proposition, life yeah. worth living. And as co-authors, there were three co-authors on, on the book, like, not to sound like a, a jerk, but like, who are you to say what life worth living? You know, obviously that's not what the book is about. It's more about questions that we're grappling with, but even the questions. So who says? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think about this all the time, honestly. And if I weren't convinced that when it comes down to it, it's most all of us have what it takes to get some traction on these deep human questions, then I would feel completely disqualified from writing a book like this. Mm. I think... So I'm a, I'm a theologian, right? Theology, when it's done right, gets you into the milieu of these sort of questions. It touches down to the existential stuff. It opens up really big perspectives. So I've got some training in that, right? The main experience that I have, and the one thing that I guess maybe counts as a qualification for saying, hey, I might be able to help you orient yourself, help you ask the right questions in the right way to, to get a firmer grip on, on what you believe is really worthy of your life is that I've spent time teaching students. In 2014, Miroslav, my co-author, and I started teaching a class at Yale that we called Life Worth Living. And we were just making it up at the time. We thought there's a need for this. Uh, we're going to do our best to to meet that need. What, and, what year was this, by the way? So first time we taught it was spring of 2014. 2014. And, yeah. Okay. So we've taught 10 versions of the class since then. Oh, wow. Um, and, at Yale. And our sense was that students really needed a place in the curriculum to ask the sort of questions that usually get kind of shunted off to the to the dorm room kind of late at night when uh, you can't study anymore, but you're, there's still an aching in your soul. And so we, we, we did our best with the syllabus, right? And we got a great group of students there for the first go round. And about halfway through the semester started to think something's clicking here. Um, and by the time we get to the end of the semester, we set aside a session to say like, Hey, this was a, this was an experimental class. Did the experiment work? Is this the sort of thing that we should do again? Or was this a nice try? Go back to the drawing board. And students' response was surprisingly enthusiastic and kind of overwhelmingly, this is a thing that needs to keep going. That was the point at which we passed it off to our colleague, Matt Crosman, who's our third co-author. And then ever since that second year, we've we've all been kind of in and out of teaching this class. And what you learn is the skill of helping people feel comfortable in places where they've disqualified themselves mm. with questions they've never thought of before, saying things that might be risky because you don't know what other people think about it, you don't know how they're going to judge you, 
asking questions that might feel prying, things like that, and creating a space where you can still have the conversation and you can still keep it connected to people's lives. Yeah. So often when we talk about big things, we kind of spin off into the abstract. I think the skill that we've learned is to find ways to take the, re the resources of that abstract and bring them into people's lives. So one of the things that was really striking, I forget where in the book it, it's mentioned, I think it's pretty early on, that this is not just for the halls of academia, uh, that you're having these conversations in different settings. Uh, for example, the Danbury Federal Correctional Institution. And I'm curious if the types of conversations or perhaps the types of answers that you get, how different they are in different settings at Yale Divinity School versus uh, a correctional institution. Yeah, so I, I think it varies quite a bit, the kind of conversation that you wind up having. For instance, I, you know, I didn't teach the, the, uh, the Danbury version of the class. That, that was Matt Crosman who did that. But from what he tells me, there was, I mean, there's a whole lot more kind of sober realism yeah. about human limits and about the reality of messing up, of wrestling with. Uh, the recognition that your life hasn't gone how you'd hoped it would go and things of that sort. So there's right. a kind of uh, a soberness there that was that can get lost in a idealistic 18 to 22 year olds sort of setting. Although I've seen in our Yale students over the years, the it's not all idealism. There's a lot of a lot of kids have been through a lot of stuff. Uh, even by the time they make it to a place like Yale. And so those variations aren't total, right? But they're kind of different shades, different questions that, that really hit home the most. And I like the I like contexts where you can bring people in who wouldn't usually have these conversations together. Those I think are really, really valuable. Uh, when you get manage to get an intergenerational version of these conversations, yeah. right? Uh, talking with grandparents and young adults at the same time is really valuable because none of us has the, the kind of universal perspective, right? Each one of us is located and that locatedness inflects how the questions even show up for us. Mm. And really learning to listen to other people's <laughs> perspectives is an incredible way uh, of getting a better handle on your own. It's not that you kind of give up your perspective, but that your perspective can be enriched by these sort of mutual encounters. Right, right. So I, I thought the way that we do it, I, I mentioned this before we hit record, is to, there are questions throughout the book. At the end of each chapter or section, there's a thing called your turn, where it's time for the reader, uh, in the case of the book, to consider some of these basic questions. Um, so I was originally thinking that we would do maybe the intro or the first chapter, but there are questions throughout the book that I think for a conversation like this are worth grappling with. Um, so uh, I'll just, I'll go through some of these questions. And again, I'm, I'm curious what your answer to the question is, but I'm also curious because you've gone through these conversations now for 10 years or almost 10 years, uh, what your observation about the impact that a question like this has um on other folks or what you've observed when other folks are answering it. So if you're game, we'll... I'm game. Let's do it. All right. So one of the first ones that struck me that I had to think about was how universal do good circumstances need to be 
in order to be fully good. Yeah, that's that's a kind of cumbersome question, right? <laughs> but it's it's cumbersome for a reason. Yeah. Right. We, what we want to get on the table there is the possibility that there could be something less than ideal about good circumstances, less than good even about circumstances that can't be universalized, that are intrinsically competitive. And well, actually, let me turn this around a little bit. And sure. let me ask you about some of the circumstances of your life that you at a gut level find to be valuable and good and that you're you're kind of you're grateful for. Yeah. Um, so what am I is that what you're asking? What yeah. am I grateful for? Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, you, you know, it, one of the uh, convictions, by the way, that I came to by the end of the book was that I had a writing habit from about 2007 to about a year and a half ago, and something happened to my hand where I, I couldn't physically, I could type, but I couldn't physically write, mm. which is like how I, I like to do it. And I haven't gotten back to my daily writing habit. It wasn't a, um, a structured, it was more free, free flow of thought, kind of a conversation with God. Um, but the one thing I did do on a daily basis was what am I thankful for? Uh, gratitude, like what am I grateful for? Um, so I, that's one of my convictions is now that my hands are better, um, I want to get back to the writing, uh, the physical writing. What am I grateful for? I'm grateful for the opportunity to reflect. I'm grateful for the the time and the space um, to consider whether it's something mundane, like, you know, if I take time in the morning to sit outside and read or uh, meditate or uh, when I was writing every day. Um, for, for that time. And sometimes something would strike me like uh, the flowers in the, in our back, we, we don't have a huge backyard, but just like there's one mm. rose bush and the way that the colors pop, just some, some mornings I'll go out and I'm like, Oh, there it is. You know, um, something like that, or the sound of birds, especially at a certain time in the morning. Um, so say it, it's the sound night sound cliche, but I, I am grateful for that. I'm grateful. Okay. Right now, this season of life, I'm grateful uh, for in about two, three weeks, uh, it will be the 30th anniversary of my first date with Miss Lisa. <laughs> Congratulations. November 17th, it'll be the 30th anniversary of our first date. I'm really grateful for that. She's been stationed. She was in Houston in a training program for six and a half weeks, and she's been stationed in San Francisco since June. So we've been apart for the first time in 30 years. And I, I'm grateful for remembering I'm very fond of this human. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. You know, there's a sweetness to that. Um, I'm grateful. I'm going to get choked up talking about this. But um, I went through a, I went through a hard season. Um, uh, so one of the reasons I started writing in 2007, I was diagnosed bipolar, uh, manic depressive. Um, so writing was one of the tools that mm -hmm. I had deployed. Um, to uh, make sure that I stayed within a certain zone. Um, and then uh, this in late spring through the early summer, I didn't realize that I was in a danger zone. Uh, especially mm -hmm. my, my danger zones, the, um, not the hyper, the manic tends to be very periodic and brief and intense. Uh, the depressive, I realized, tends to be very uh, seasonal and extended. Um, and that's the, the, the draw to the melancholy is really the danger zone, the danger zone for me. 
So I didn't even realize I was in it until sometime around Father's Day. I'm like, oh, it was almost mm. like I was, this is going to sound weird to describe it, but it was almost like I was welcoming an old friend back into my company, back into my presence. Like, oh, I know you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was dark, man. So I bring it up because what am I grateful for? I I, I had gotten away from certain tools that um, kept me out of that place. Uh, or, or at least it's not that it's not that you can stay out of it. It's just that you, you can it's easier to get out of bed uh, mm -hmm. every morning when you're there. Um, and then you can kind of mitigate the bad effects of it, the, the unhealthy effects of it to a degree. If you're staying true to certain things like, you know, in my case, meditating or writing, reading good material, mostly the biggest thing. And this is the thing that it's like, it is, is hardest to do, but the most important to do. And it's what I, I, I don't know the right word for it, but it's good community, good communion, um, being in the company of loving souls. Yeah. Uh, so once I realized I was there and then just made a point, even if it was just mechanically. Um, so what am I grateful for? I'm grateful for loving souls. Yeah. So, so thank you, by the way, for, for that story. That's a, it's a beautiful way to, to land gratitude for loving souls. And so when we think about the circumstances of our lives that are that we take to be good and valuable that are really worth hoping for. Some of them are kind of non-competitive, easily universalizable. Um, there is probably nothing in principle keeping the sound of birds singing from being something that all humans could have could their lives enriched by it. Right now, there are actual structures in the world and actual setups and ways that our cities are built and ways that our economies are run and all of this sort of stuff that make it so in actual fact, not everybody has that. There are plenty of people who live in places where the, the birds very rarely sing. Right. But that's. That brings you to the ethical question of what should we do about that fact? It's not the dilemma of, oh, no it seems really to be the case that my having this depends on other people's not having this, right? Yeah. For, like for real, for real depends on it. And you shade in that direction. And as you shade in that direction, I think the question becomes more painful of, can I really fully invest in the goodness of this circumstance? Uh, so I, it's starting to shade in that direction. It's like when I've got the time to reflect, right? Mm -hmm. um, how much is that time dependent on other people's not having the time, right? Um, we, we use the example in the book of, of David Foster Wallace's experience being on a cruise ship uh, where every little whim of your life on a cruise ship is kind of already in anticipation taken care of by someone else. And uh, that leaves you with a sort of kind of freedom to do whatever the heck you want. And, uh, but it leaves the galley crew with like 20 hour work days. Right. And that's, that's more a structural thing. Yeah. You can't give, you cannot give some people a cruise ship life without giving other people a galley crew life. And if you're really committed to the cruise ship life being your vision of the good life, then you've really got to own up to the fact that you're committed to it being a scarce thing, mm. not a thing that everybody could enjoy. I, re I remember the illustration and, and I get that. 
Um, but I, I also, it made me think of um, when I first started learning how to be a leader, I was producing some small theater in New York and uh, continued doing that when I came out here to LA and I realized I'm the producer, I'm the, you know, whatever, the, uh, the boss, you know, but I also realized that, okay, so what the boss means is I have to make certain decisions and lead a group of people. But what the boss also means is if nobody raises their hand to clean the toilets before a performance, I'm cleaning the toilets. <laughs> but there was a joy in that. If you we were doing Chekhov or doing Tennessee Williams or if you're doing Eugene O'Neill, like, and we were breathing new life into that, that is all a part of bringing this story to life. You know, yes, the actors get to do the acting and the director has this thing and, you know, but cleaning the toilets before the performance so that the, the audience who's participating in that play, that's a part of it, too. So I, I learned in a way to embrace all of it. And my pushback, I guess I bring that story up because my pushback on the premise of the question is I don't believe necessarily that everything is zero sum. And I think you I think you readily deal with that at other when you're presenting other ways of thinking about this, but is that fair to say that, that um, the zero sum? Yeah, no, I, I think back. it's, it's precisely a question of what things are closer to zero sum than not. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I'm, if I'm being kind of speaking for myself, I have a sense that there are a lot of non zero sum things out there that we're treating more as, as though there's zero thumb that we zero sum that we've got ways of interacting with each other that increase competition and increase only one of the two can have this sort of thing than we need to have. Like we could find a lot more ways for people to enjoy a lot more of the goods of created life than they do without even having to then address the question of those things that are really zero sum when you get down to it at the, at the very bottom. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of a side note, but I was I was doing a little bit of research on your background, and I, I landed on your wife's profile, and um, it, it, I hope you take this the right way. Your wife's a badass. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's I, I take that exactly the right way. Um, um, and so I, I bring it up because I'm wondering how much her work uh, illuminates this this very part of the conversation makes you that much more uh, um, aware of of the possibility. That there, yeah. there is, in fact, situations where it is zero-sum, st certain structures, institutional structures. So I'm curious what your thoughts yep. are on that. So, yeah, no, exactly. So my wife works in international development, roughly, uh, trying, to, trying to work on ways to reduce poverty at a global scale. And that was actually the trajectory that we were both on uh, in college uh, before we got married. Yeah. And I'm the one who kind of took this left turn into academia, kind of the Yale world, all of that sort of stuff, theology. Um, and the first two years of our marriage, right after college, and also some summers during college, we spent time living in Latin America. Mm. And it's... You can only ever, as an American living in Latin America, live a form of privilege, right? You're kind of, you're choosing to reverse the migratory flows, right? <laughs> that uh, that other people don't choose to have exist, right? That there's right. there's kind of 
uh, a sense of of desperation flowing north and a sense of freedom as the one going south, right? Yeah. Um, And you can only have a certain sort of asymmetrical relationship with the folks around you when you're living in a small village in Panama or something like that. Right. That experience and the genuine friendships that we developed nonetheless, despite the kind of social differences and uh, the embarrassments and the the challenges, have been really profoundly influential on in the way that I think about these questions. Because I, I don't want to give answers that will ring hollow if I go back to Guatemala and talk to my friends there about it. Um, I don't want them to be able to say, you forgot about me when you went off to Yale and did this, this fancy thinking about the good life. Right. Um, on the flip side, I have a real sense that these questions are live for everybody. Uh, that it's not the case that these are just privileged questions and that it's kind of patronizing to think of a world full of uh, most people who don't get to think about the meaning of life and then rich people who get to think about that. So that's those are the kind of those are the backgrounds of my convictions about why these questions matter and, and what um, and and why. Yeah, we really ought to be attuned to the universalizability of the goods that we're hoping for. Yeah. Yeah. So the answer to the question about what standards guide your conduct it's not, uh, well, I don't want to give up my jag. <laughs> it's, it's, those aren't the, the answers that you're necessarily looking for. So let me ask another question that, that's a little further, deeper into the book. What stories shape your sense of the world and your place in it? Ooh. You want me to, you want me to answer that one? What sure, stories yeah. shape my... Hmm. So I think this operates at two levels. I think I have an aspirational uh, kind of best moments, stories that shape my world. And then I think I have a de facto, I fall back on it if I'm not careful sort of mm-hmm. way. And as a Christian theologian, I would I would think of that second one as the kind of story that sin tells me about my life. Uh, and that I, as a sinner, tell about my own life in the world. And so the, the former, what stories aspirationally shape how I view the world, the good days, good moments? It's the story of God's homemaking work in the world, of a God who creates the world out of love, for love intends it towards a communion of love between God and creatures and among creatures uh, and the sort of communion that we might call a home. And then in particular, the story of how Jesus embodies that in the, in a world that is really messed up, that is in theological terms fallen. Okay. So that's a concept Part of what you said reminds me of what my friend Lisa Sharon Harper has been working on, the sense of shalom, of bringing shalom and, mm-hmm. and unity and creation um, and 
love and peace, you know, uh, bringing together, the bringing together. But the part of it that I have to grapple with or maybe uh, do more thinking about is the homemaking part of it. Uh, tell me tell me a little bit more of what you mean by the homemaking. Yeah, so this is this is going to get into kind of biblical theology real quick. I hope that's okay. That's okay. So at the very end of, of the Christian Bible, in, in the book of Revelation, after all the stuff that you usually hear about in the book of Revelation, there's this final vision where John— 21 and 22. Yep. John the yeah. seer uh, sees— the new Jerusalem uh, uh, coming down from heaven to earth. And then here's a voice. And that voice says, behold, the home of God is among humans. And then I take it. And uh, Miroslav Wolf and I have, have written a different book on, on this, that the, this final consummating vision, this vision of, Things put right and brought into their fullness is of God's home coming to be among us such that we might be truly at home with God and with each other and such that the new Jerusalem is kind of is a, is a home. And then if you look back through the Bible, you see this concept of home crop up again and again. In the, the beginning of the Gospel of John, it says the word became flesh and dwelled, dwelt, made, made his home among us. And so you can think of Jesus as the, the kind of homemaking God at work in the world. And if you go back even further, the books of Genesis and Exodus kind of build towards the culmination of the building of the tabernacle, the, this kind of portable temple. And what is a temple but a home of God? Uh, you know, there's a place in... Um, in the Hebrew Bible called Bethel. Uh, and that, that just means the house of God, right? Bethel, uh, and the, yeah. Yeah, and the Psalms, uh, it's so often said, you know, um, you know, how lovely is is your dwelling place? Uh, there's a, it's a Matt Redman song, right? Haunting um, song. Better is yeah. one day, right? Um, and so I think I think we can draw this thread and say, for our world right now, which I take to be a world where the where home is a is a question, there's a deep sense of alienation. There's a deep sense of displacement. There are deep realities of human beings being displaced and living in places that are unhomelike. I think that thinking of the story of God's work in the world in terms of home is is really valuable. For um, I think it's a true way of talking true to the scriptural witness. And I think it's valuable because it speaks to existential needs that we have right now. Um, a kind yeah. of yearning that we have where home is one of those things that, that we sense maybe would really be worth hoping for. That's interesting because I found a couple of my answers. I forgot what the questions were, uh, but there were a few that I kept on coming back to this. What do you long for? What, what do you need? What, you know, um, what do you hope for? Uh, kind of these driving questions of what's at the root of it. And I, a couple of the concepts that arose for me was uh, the feeling of acceptance and security mm. uh, that I haven't, I haven't had that uh, whether it's psychological, emotional security and acceptance 
or fiscal, uh, you know, financial. Uh, you know, basically since 2008, you know, we've gone right. through a bunch of bumps in the road that a lot of folks that were doing okay, you know, have had to figure out how to make things balance the budget, you know. So sometimes it's just very concrete that way. Um, but, yeah, I kept on coming back to that. But now that you mentioned the sense of home, the sense of um, dwelling, uh, I'm connecting it. Because John is, is actually my favorite favorite gospel. It's the most theological as I read it. Um, now I'm thinking, too, though, because I'm still I'm, – I'm feeling more Jewish than ever, part, partly because of what's going on in Israel. Um, or at least more Jewish than I've felt in 20-something years. I even went to Chabad for a Shabbos service. Uh, last week and I, I felt at home I felt hmm. you know but I'm also thinking historically uh, the destruction of the second temple the the rabbinic movement redefined what it was to be their home if you will their yeah. theological home religious home their practice what they where where their practice was so I, these aren't very well formed thoughts but you have Bottom line is you have me thinking now. So. Oh, great. That's that's what I'm going for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, kind of picking up on that theme, what stories shape your sense of what it is to be human? Hmm. I, I was thinking of stories, actually. Um, for me, what it is to be human, I'm, I was just thinking of stories that really, really resonate that um, I used the word haunting before that haunt me, like the, the character Tom Wingfield in The Glass Menagerie. He's asking questions and grappling with his own failures, um, and, and his questions continue to haunt me. Lila in uh, the Marilyn Robinson book. I don't know Ooh, if you're... Yeah. We could talk a lot about it, Marilyn Robinson, but that's probably not the best way to go right now. Um, so I'll throw some other things into the mix. Sure. Um, I think I think Dostoevsky's stories have, have significantly shaped my sense of what it means to be a human. The gambler, uh, of course. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, you know, I think... Oh, that like little mini no- novel inside of Brothers K, Brothers K. Yeah. Um, right? Yeah. So there's there's the Grand Inquisitor story inside Brothers K. There's there's the whole... Uh, Nietzsche said that, that Dostoevsky was, was one of the first true psychologists. Uh, mm. the, that he could really see... Kind of what it is to be a to be a human psyche in the world, yeah. and and I think I've picked up a sense of the the precarity of human life, um, in part from those more literary sort of stories, the ways that things can go dreadfully wrong, the ways that we can take ourselves in dreadfully the wrong direction. Um, you never get the sense that any of Dostoevsky's characters are controlling the narrative. There's nobody in charge of their own destiny in his novels. Um, and there are plenty of people who might pretend to be, but, um, you know, Raskolnikov is maybe the perfect example in Crime and Punishment. Here's somebody who's trying to exert his control, who's trying to show that he's beyond good and evil, that he that he controls what's right and wrong and how he's going to live. And it just, it all comes crumbling down. Right. And, and I think that's been, that's a very important sense for me that, that we're not in control of our own stories. And, um, and I think my kind of personal life experience then has, has fed into that. 
moving from a sense, uh, a kind of young brashness that when it comes down to it, of course I'm a world beater, yeah. to a, a, a more realistic kind of measured sense of how much is not in our hands and how much we are at the mercy of things that we don't choose and how much we have to rely on someone's outside of ourselves. Yeah. So you just reminded me of two different stories at two different, very different points in my life. One was coming over that last hill, coming into the LA basin when Lisa and I drove cross country. I was 20, was I 24 yet? Um, maybe I was still 23. Um, and I remember looking at that basin of, of mm. lights mm-hmm. and thinking, oh yeah, I could take this town. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and then the town ultimately took me. But um, later on, with a little bit of wisdom, we were young parents and going through 2008, there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, I, I had done pretty well professionally uh, in the early 2000s. 2008 hit, and then, like I said, just we didn't know what was next. And I was trying to explain it to my kids. They were little at the time. And I said, um, you know, they had just discovered, uh, the two older ones just discovered surfing in their own little way. And the way I described it was like, we can't shape the wave. We just have to ride mm. the wave that is, you know. Uh, but ultimately, we, we want to get to the shore. <laughs> we don't want to drown. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that it, it's a very different way of looking at it. Like I can, you know, I can make the world and the universe do what I want. That's a very sort of um, not that uh, it's beyond. I am the center of the universe. It's like I am God, and you know. So that I, I eschew that impulse to want to be to even want to be that. Um, to me, riding that wave is kind of like jazz. It's like you have to be faithful. The way the way that the way that um, I've shared this analogy before. Uh, a great theologian. He used to be at Duke. He's in Indiana now. A guy named Jay Cameron Carter. Um, the way he describes it is uh, he he was sharing how Coltrane said there are a few things where virtuosity can really uh, be at its peak, and that is you ha- you still have to be faithful to the score. You know, whosever composition it was, whether it was Coltrane's or Thelonious Monk's, you still have to be faithful to the movement of the score. Um, And then the other thing was when he was playing with other virtuosos. So going back to that concept of being in communion with other loving souls or other virtuoso musicians in this analogy um, raises your own game. It makes you that much. they, They bring out the humanity in you or the creativity in you. But then also that freedom within the context of faithful to the score, other musicians and doing your part, whether you're the percussion or you're the bass and laying the foundation of the groove or the, you know, playing the horn, you know, and telling the storyteller of it or the whole musical context that the piano, that, that monk was like, it just, it all makes sense. So being uniquely who you are within the context of other people that are living out the story, the composition, the score, you know, am I, am I drawing this out too much or is this well, making sense? I mean, what you're doing is you're, you're kind of, uh, improvising a doctrine of vocation, I think, in, in theological terms, oh, okay. uh, in, in the ways that, um, any particular individual's whatever it means to be fully you is going to be set within a kind of musical context that requires 
other people to be fully them. And yeah. uh, it's not going to be, and this is a, a kind of theological way of thinking about it, but it's not going to be isolated individual kind of brilliance or excellence or uniqueness because it takes its sense in the way that a, that a melody takes its sense from how it's harmonized. Um, you can you can do very different things with the same melodic line by changing the chords underneath it, right? And um, and I think I think the way you you were drawing that out, yeah, it just made me think, ah, yeah, that's 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 vocation functioning at kind of full flourishing, rather than yeah. what we usually see in our lives, which is much more fragmented than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are two related questions toward the end uh, of the book. Are there people you'd be willing to die for? And are there ideals you'd be willing to die for? And then the second half of both of those questions is, why would that be important? Or why why would it be worth it? So I'm curious how you would answer those questions. Hmm. I don't think you ever truly know until the chips are down, yeah. as it were. But I can hope. And I think even understanding our hopes, who do I hope I would be willing to die for? What do I hope I would be willing to die for? Is really valuable in orienting our hearts and maybe putting us on the path to be the sort of people who would actually do it if that became necessary. I mean, this this is not unusual. My kids, my wife. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's... I'm ambivalent about this, but I... I would want to say a, a much longer list than that, I think. Um, I think that... So there's a strange thing built into the into the Christian story, which has at its center a life given for others, a death died for others. And that strange thing is that the death itself can't be good. Um, the death itself is is a tragedy so it's not it's not the case that sacrifice is the highest good sacrifice can't be the highest good because for sacrifice to make sense it has to be for something else which therefore is is a higher good and so I'm I'm ambivalent about wanting to be able to give that longer list of people and and ideas that I would be willing to die for because I don't want to valorize sacrifice for its own sake. To say that yeah. to say that love is only love when it's sacrificial is I think selling love far too short. Right. The you know I I hesitate to bring this up but I think it's it's important to point out uh there's um I think I have this right. I have to go back and read my cousin Sheila's note. But I think uh, what she told us yesterday was they have a young man 
living with them now. They live in Beersheba, which is um, being bombed. Uh, so mm. they're living near their, um, instead of their room, they're basically living in their shelter. Uh, when they come out, they hear the Iron Dome working. They have neighbors. Uh, one young man um, is someone whose parents protected him. They, they were living on kibbutz. Uh, and it's the story that I think, um, this isn't an uncommon story. So um, tragically, um, his two parents basically protected him and died for him. So it's, it's, it's very real. Now to your point, I, I think it's very, um, candid and earnest of you to share that you, you don't know what you would do in a situation like that. You'd like to think that that's what you would do. The way that I've contextualized it is I, I'd like to think that too. But what I do know is that I, I think of it in terms of who would I live for um, or who would I sacrifice for. For example, like it, we've come close a couple times to um, uh, organs like uh, kidney. Like who mm. would I give a kidney to? Yeah. Uh, and it's not a long, long list, but you know, I, I have three best friends that I grew up with. I would give my kidney. You know, my kids, obviously, my wife, my brother. Um, I'd have to think about my parents. <laughs> they're Jewish and they're from New York. The amount of guilt, I'd have to do it, but they guilt me into it. That's why, that's the only reason I hesitate. <laughs> um, you know, and we'd have a, you know, we'd have a, a Neil Simon-esque conversation. You've already lived a good life. What do you need my kidney for? Um, and now they've got tape to sight when that conversation happens. <laughs> I'd probably, I'd probably do it out of guilt. And then, but then I'd have like a, a chip to play on them. Like I gave you my kidney. What else do you <laughs> want from me? But what I will not do, I, I draw the line on helping you move. If anybody's moving, whether it's an apartment or a room or a house, I will gladly pay. I will, I, I would sooner sell my plasma and, and raise money to give to you to pay for move. I do not move people. That's not something I do. Let it be known for the record. Oh, you're missing out <laughs> on one of the great joys of life. I actually, one of the things that has saddened me about my 30s is that I have many fewer friends who are moving and need my help moving. So I don't get to move boxes and pianos and whatever around. Yeah. Uh, that, that's something I will joyfully give. We were part of a Bible study when we were first starting to have kids. And uh, it seemed like every weekend we were moving somebody else. And I finally got to the point. I think the image I used is I'd rather take a cheese grater to my eyeball than help you move. Let me just be honest. <laughs> oh, that well. seems more pleasant to me. So <laughs> oh, the, another when I came across this question, what, are there ideals you'd be willing to die for? I, I was surprised when I realized I don't think there are. But the reason is... I could be wrong. The ideals that I think I hold on to, I've gotten to a point in my life where I'm, I realize, what if I'm wrong about that ideal? <laughs> that's, the, that's the only reason that I'm ambivalent about ideals worth dying for. Does that, does that make sense? It does. It makes me think, what's, yeah, what's the difference between people and ideals such that we could, we could say things like, I was wrong about them. Right. Um, but for whatever reason, what you just said intuitively, it really makes sense to me at a gut level that there's less of a sense that um, that you could be wrong and it could be just a mistake to yeah. to 
give your life for this other human being uh, when you could just be absolutely wrong about the way the world is and all your ideals and all of this sort of stuff. I still have some hope for the for the ideals thing. I get, well, I I don't know. I guess it depends on on what counts as an ideal and and yeah. like is like the kingdom of God an ideal? I don't know. Uh, but are you familiar with the prayer uh, the Kol Nidre? Are you familiar with that prayer? I don't think so. It's the prayer that opens up the Yom Kippur service, uh, the evening. In uh, Judaism, the evenings start the day. So the evening service of of Yom Kippur, you start with, I think it's seven recitations of the Kol Nidre prayer. And it was instituted after the uh, Inquisition. So Hmm. Jews had to basically renounce their faith publicly. um, And I I don't know who wrote the prayer, but it's this beautiful, uh, melancholy melody as a kid, I'm like, oh, can he get it? Up? Can we do like the hip hop <laughs> version of it? Like, let's get it, get it on, you know, get through it. Um, but no, it's as long. And basically the prayer is for any, um, for anything, any promises I made throughout this year, forgive me. Um, give, give, you know, give, give me a mulligan, basically. Mm. Um, because throughout history, uh, Jews had to... Uh, make public uh, uh, statements of faith in, in some instances uh, in order to survive, literally in order to survive. Now, there's a lot less dramatic versions of that. You know, it's basically a, an introduction to, for the sins I committed, um, you know, throughout the year uh, or the promises that I broke, things like that, yeah. the commitments that I broke. So that... Um, you just reminded me of uh, it's a, it's a beautiful way of accounting for broken promises and way, ways that you've fallen short and um, accounting for that before your family at the service before God, you know, uh, among yeah. the congregation. So, um, all right. So, uh, last question that kind of leads into the last questions that I, I took outside of the book. The last question from the book that lead to something. Um, that I, I often ask here, who do you talk with about what matters most? Are any of them people you regularly disagree with? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with this question in part because it condemns me a little bit. Um, and that, that feels a little, that feels right. So, well, so I have the, the advantage of having a kind of annual structure in my life of getting together with 10 to 18 college students and talking about what matters most. And uh, you can take it for granted that, that I disagree with almost all of them about lots of things, <laughs> right? Um, and, and that's really nice because otherwise my life tends to have the sort of structure that I think a lot of our lives have, which is uh, a sort of um, intentional or unintentional grouping into like-mindedness. And where I find that this causes me trouble is when I can rely on little shortcuts, linguistic, (laughs) shorthand, conceptual, or like life practice shortcuts that, um, that don't have to be I can forget how hard it is to make sense of them. 
I can forget how important it is to be reflective about the sort of things that we think and the sort of ways that what we think shapes how we live. And um, having the periodic chance to, in a relationship, hopefully of trust and, and goodwill, have somebody just bring a totally different perspective, it it helps because because otherwise I'm I'm apt to coast right, mm. um, and I just I've got a sense that that there will be times in life when views and visions and practices that you've been coasting with, yeah, uh, and not really giving any sort of substance or grounding will fail you. Um, yeah, life is like is too complex, too messy, too unpredictable to just go with the coasting because the road is going to get bumpy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually love this question. So like I said before, there are certain questions where I was more like the three-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. Like, I don't want to answer this question. But when we got to this question toward the end, I was like, hell yeah, this is like, this is my jam. Right. This yeah. This, this, this is thing. what you do, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny because I, I'm actually, I, one of the reasons I do it, this is going to sound ironic, but one of the reasons I do it is because I'm not good at it. Like I, I have these impulses that I've learned through, you know, doing a lot of reading and talking to people I disagree with and learning about how to do it better, whether it's through the village square, the nonprofit that, that I'm friends with or, or Mani Guzman with the braver angels in her book. I never thought of it that way. Um, just learning how to do it better and trying to embody those practices that you learn once you're in it. I'm like, Oh, I would have gotten a D minus if, if I'm lucky on that one, you know, Mon- <laughs> yeah. Monty would be like, nope, nope. But then again, she's so gracious. So she'd be like, okay, Corey. So what you did well here, you know? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, but yeah, it, I do it because I know that I'm not good at it, but I also do it because I know it's so necessary. I get together with people that vote for different people than I do, or go to different churches or don't go to church or re- uh, synagogue or whatever. I do it because it's important to learn how to be baseline human with each other. So, and, and, and it, in order to do that, we're all different. We're all unique. So to be able to continue to be in communion with each other because of our differences, across our differences. So along those lines, um, I wanted to ask, I call it the TPNR question. What do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with have better conversations with, perhaps even nurture relationships with people across these differences. People who think differently than we do, have different beliefs than we do, get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do better at talking politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible? I think one thing we can do is to go upstream. So, and this this is this is what I do. So it's the thing that comes to mind naturally. It can be really valuable to recognize that behind our political and kind of uh, surface level religious lives are deep senses about the world and about what matters and why. And it can be surprisingly easier to have conversations about those deep senses than about the concrete issues. And I think it can be really valuable then to kind of start back upstream 
start with the bigger, broader questions, mm. sometimes the more abstract questions. And my hope is that this is what Life Worth Living is doing. It's not there. There are other folks who will who are really, really good at doing the kind of nitty gritty dialogue on the hot button political issue or whatnot. Yeah, that's not my expertise. I think there's there's probably really good value for those. But I think it's also helpful to walk back up and to think a little bit more about our deeper ethical visions and to connect there, even to connect over our differences. Somehow, for whatever reason, those differences I found don't they don't get us as quite quite as like angry as the more kind of everyday political religious stuff does. Yeah. So so the the basic idea would be find a big question, read something together or just pose the question and talk together about that big question, use that as like relationship building and get to a point where you trust each other enough that you can get to the like brass tacks of the stuff that divides you on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I do think that you can arrive at common denominators uh, in almost all instances. Uh, Some things obviously are just, are just, tragically historically too far gone it's been there's been processes of dehumanization for so long um, across different peoples uh, that I, it's it's a, it's a god-shaped gap between those two peoples um, so meaning only only God if you believe in God is someone who can uh, cross that chasm but um, yeah I, that's interesting no, nobody's answered the question. Uh, the TPNR question in quite that way. I'm going to have to think about that. So uh, a couple more questions and then we'll, one piece of business and then we'll wrap up. Um, do you have any questions for me and or is there anything important I forgot to ask you? It's a great question. I don't think there's anything important you forgot to ask me. Oh, I think the questions that I would ask you are all questions that your listeners have probably heard before, right? It's like, How'd you wind up doing this? And uh, tell me a little bit about your your spiritual journey and all of that sort of stuff. So yeah. so probably probably we're good because they probably know it all, and I'll just have to ask you on the side via email or something. Yeah, that's that's great. It, it is true because uh, the story of how a Jew from Jersey was going to an Orthodox synagogue became a Christian in my late twenties. Like, yeah, that's it's not well, a common story. I mean, so it's it's funny because. Um, there is a pastor in the Vineyard Church named Rich Nathan, uh, oh. who shares your last name and also shares your Jewish heritage and story of an adult conversion to Christianity. Interesting. Um, and uh, so it's not. A, I, I imagine you guys have some pretty different stories, but I imagine there are some interesting similarities too. Um, yeah. He he was the lead pastor at the Columbus Vineyard uh, oh. until pretty recently, which was the biggest church in the movement. So. I enjoyed it. We did go to the Vineyard Church for a, a minute when I first became a Christian, but it didn't. Lisa grew up in the South, uh, so when we started going, she's like, "This doesn't look or feel like church." <laughs> so yeah, having grown up in Southern California, when I found my way to the Vineyard, I was like, "Ah, oh, this does look and feel like church." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, but you're right, and I, I'm happy to share it. But um, I, it is always worth mentioning, though, that the reason I'm 
doing this is because talking to my family when I first became a Christian, I had to have really hard conversations about our yeah. heritage and religion yeah. and theology. Uh, but then also we did end up at a fundamentalist church uh, where a predominant number of people were primarily socially and politically conservative. They thought they were theologically conservative, but when the, you know, when the rubber met the road and they had to either choose their social and political preferences versus what the Bible was actually telling us, they ended up with their, they kind of backed shards of scripture into their pre, their political preferences. What passes for theological conservatism in America is often like rank heresy according to the theological tradition. So. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Moore talks about that in his uh, most recent book, you know, where you could be quoting directly from, you know, one of the gospels and, you know, one of your, <laughs> one, of, one of your friends uh, from church might say, well, where'd you get that liberal crap, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, so it, it is, but being able to have these questions with guys that were raising our kids together and, you know, guys we're going to church with and, you know, having difficult conversations, being really candid about, hey, what does it say in scripture? And let's try to meet this out. Um, why do you feel that way? How'd you arrive at that political position? You know, learning how to do it better is, I, it's it's why I keep coming back to it, why we keep doing it. And it's definitely worth exploring. Um, if nothing else, I want to get better at it. So I'll get kicked out of less Bible studies. <laughs> nice. So anyway, um, how, and, and I have been kicked out of my fair share, just just for the record. Um, <laughs> how can we follow you online, find more information about uh, Yale Center for Faith and Culture and all the great, great work that you're doing? Go to faith.yale.edu is probably the best way to go. If I can plug our podcast, it's called For the Life of the World. For the Life of the World. I'm going to put that in the show notes uh, for the just writing it down for my own notes right now for the life of the world. I did listen to uh, some of that, but I, I'm glad you mentioned it for the life of the world. Great conversations on there. Um, you do it well, by the way. So a lot of folks do podcasting out of some sense of obligation. Well, we should be doing podcasting. Eh, maybe you shouldn't, but you guys do it well. So it's a, it's a great program. Um, if you're, you know, if, if this is, uh, th this stuff fascinates me. So that's, that's why I'm drawn to it. It's in my queue. Um, thank you for doing this. It, it's really great. It's such a. It's always such a thrill for me because I have gotten to know you through your work, and you know now getting to have a conversation with you is such a treat. So I really appreciate you taking the time, and and uh, thanks for, you know, thanks for the conversation. I hope it's not the last one, and, and we get to hang out again. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been really an honor to talk with you, to get to know you a little bit, uh, and I'm really really glad to see what you're doing. And maybe we'll find our, each other around a poker table someday. <laughs> oh yeah, although from what I can tell, I think you would be me. <laughs> Well, if you get me on the Omaha table, maybe I can learn how to how to kind of manage my cash flow a little bit better on the Omaha table. <laughs> there we go. Okay. That's, it's a deal. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. All right. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please, please, please subscribe. Uh, maybe a lot of you already are, and that's great. But also take the time to leave a review on whichever app that you're on. It really does make a difference. And tell a friend about these conversations. Tell a friend about the books that we're talking about and dive into it get into it. That's what it's all about. Talking politics and religion without killing each other. You can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's C-O-R-E-Y S is in Sam Nathan, at Corey S. Nathan. Now, go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect, and have a great week.